If you have a Bible, we're going to open to, if you haven't already seen this, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We've got just a few more weeks that we're going to be looking at promises. Uh, finishing this up, uh, this series, we certainly haven't exhausted by any means uh, the promises uh, in the Word of God for us as New Testament believers, but I trust we've given a good cross-section of those promises uh, to encourage you in living your Christian life that there are a lot of promises from God to which you can be directing faith uh, as we do this. And today we're going to be uh, looking at some promises, we started looking at some promises about our future back uh, uh, three weeks back now. We looked at uh, promises regarding his death. We didn't finish that outline. There was a little section left that we didn't get through. I know we've covered it at other times, So, we're, but I am moving today into some promises about our future. And today we're going to be looking at this idea that there's something that God guards. Just as a question for you. Why might we or somebody need somebody to guard something? What are some different reasons that you would hire a guard or have somebody guard something? Keep it safe. What? Keep it safe. To keep it safe. Okay. It's valuable. It's valuable. Why else might you have somebody that's guarding something? Next clothing travel based. Every cow had a guard, except the one. And it had 30-foot walls around, and the lock was bigger, huge. Because food is valuable. Because food is valuable. Yeah, so people guarding, guarding their cows. Nobody actually threw out one of the ones I would have said the first part, because when I think of the word guard, I think, well, you got a prisoner. I have a guard keep, make sure the prisoner doesn't get away. <laughs> That's the negative side. But the positive side, you're all stating the positive side, that you have something that you want to keep safe, something that's valuable. And we're going to be looking at God guarding something today, but we're going to have to, and, I, and I'm going to take the time to kind of explain something that goes on in this text, because your English translations do not agree, they do not agree on what Paul's point in... Uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 1.12 is. But I want to go back up and I want to read through this context and read down to the point uh, where, um, where we're going to be studying today. And I want to go back up to uh, verse 5. Paul says, I'm reading from the New American Standard, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, For I in them am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given to us a spirit of timidity or cowardice, but of power and of love and of a discipline or a, a saved attitude. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, 
who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I then was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul, the, the, Tim, the problem that Timothy's having, and we've been through this passage before, but if you go back up to verse 6, is that Timothy has a spiritual gift. Every one of you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual gift. And sometimes we sit on our hands and we don't use our spiritual gift. And, and uh, if you'd say, well, I don't have opportunities to use my spiritual gift, I would just say, you're just not paying attention. Because if you have a spiritual gift, God's putting opportunities in front of you. And sometimes we're not paying attention because we're so distracted with all the things we want to do that we miss out on the opportunities God puts right in our path. You don't even have to create opportunities. If you're just doing what God wants, God's going to bring those opportunities right across your path. And you won't have to go hunting for them. They'll be right there. I think last uh, I think I shared this the other night, but we talked about the gospel at the men's group on Monday night, and Josh made a, a ben, ben Fanning shared, Ben Orth shared, got two Bens there, and I get messed up just like I do at church. Ben Orth shared 1 Peter 3.15. We ought to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. That's your responsibility to be ready. And then I liked what Josh Fanning said. He said, every day you ought to get up and you ought to have a plan. You ought to have a schedule. you got things to do. But you're always ready to recognize that God's got a different schedule than you've planned. And you're willing to give on yours, I'm probably paraphrasing Josh's words, give on your plan to do the thing God's put in front of you. Right? You don't, sit, you don't wake up and say, I'm just going to stay in bed and wait for God to move me. No, you get up and you go about your day and you do the things God put in front of you, but you're paying attention because God's going to say, you were doing this, but I'm going to take you on this detour over here for a little bit. And sometimes that's sharing the gospel. Now, apparently that's part of what Timothy's problem is, and sometimes it's our problem, is that for whatever reason, we aren't using our gift. And so it's kind of like it's smoldering. It's just kind of like coming there and you just got these coals down there and they're burning down and there's not a lot there and you need to kind of stir that fire and get it going again is the image that he uses here. And then he goes on and he says in verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. What does that imply is maybe Timothy's problem? He's afraid. Now why might Timothy be afraid? Pardon me? I got a... Paul is about to be killed. I think that that's actually probably at the top of the list. Paul, his spiritual father, the one that shared the good news with him, that Paul is on death row. He's going to die. In fact, at the end of the book, he says, I'm already being poured out. He, he sees his death as that imminent. And he's going to die as an enemy of the state. He's going to be executed because of the gospel. And Timothy is going, well, I 
don't know that I want to go down that path. I mean, would I mean, is Timothy in good company? I mean, are there some of you that were going, hey, if probably one of the most important Christians that God's ever used in your life, think of somebody that God's really used in your life, and then for the sake of the gospel, that person was now going to die, would you maybe think, hmm, I don't know that I want to stick my head up here and get involved in this. Maybe I'm just going to step back and not do this anymore. I, I can see it would be a very real temptation to just kind of keep your head down. And this is apparently what Timothy is doing. In fact, Paul then says in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. Now, he is not saying here that Timothy is being ashamed, but he's telling Timothy, don't go down that path. He's warning Timothy away from becoming ashamed of Paul or becoming ashamed of the testimony. And I believe the fact that he ties himself in here with the testimony of Jesus Christ, I believe that is showing you part of the reason Timothy is ashamed is it's not that he's embarrassed by the gospel. It's that he is ashamed of what Paul's going through because of the gospel. And so as he's going through this, he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel, the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, the prisoner, but literally join with me in the gospel in suffering. You see that? In other words, he's telling Timothy, you got the choice that you could, you could participate in the suffering. You could stand up. You could use your gift. You could take then the shots that come at you just like they've come at me. And you could suffer together with me in this. And he says, at the end of this, this is this suffering, and he could do it according to the power of God, not just by his own efforts. The one who has saved us, talking about this, the one who has saved us with a holy calling. It's not according to our works. He didn't call you because of your works. He didn't call you because you were better than somebody else. It's not according to our works, but it's according to his own purpose and grace. People want to know, why did God call you to salvation? Because of his purpose. What's that purpose? I don't know, it's his. He didn't tell me exactly what his purpose was and why me then. It was because of his purpose, but also his grace, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus. Interestingly enough, from, from literally from the times in eternity is what he has there. The idea being all this plan, God goes way back in, into eternity and way back there from God's point of view, he already was showing grace to me. I wasn't even around, but I was part of his plan. Paul kind of says some similar things over in the book of Ephesians. But he says, but that thing that started back there has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death. Why do you think he mentions here in this passage that he has rendered idle, on one hand, death? And it's the death. What death comes to mind, first of all, when you read that? What? We usually think of physical death, and it could be physical death here. could be spiritual death. He's rendered them both idle in that regard. I mean, physical death, technically, according to Scripture, is a product of spiritual death. And if you put that together, he's encouraging Timothy, you know what? Death is a non-issue for you as a Christian. Why? 
Because God's already dealt with it. He abolished it. He rendered it idle. Well, you mean I'm not going to die? Oh, no, you might die, but it's not, a, it's not a big thing. In fact, at the end of this letter, Paul actually is going to say that he's already being poured out, and he says, and he's going to rescue me. From death? No, through death. He's going to let Paul die, and that will be a rescue from this world. I really, I know, we have people down here. That's the big issue, I would say, for most of us. We have people down here we love, love for and care for. I think for most Christians, that's probably the number one reason that we get nervous when we think about death. Just always have to remember, I remind myself when I think about this, when I think about death, if God is choosing to take me home, do you think he has plans for the people that have to stay behind? If he's going to take me home today, he has got plans for my wife. He's got plans for my daughters. He's got plans for the, my, my family here. He's got plans. So it's not like, like oh, he, he's taking Tim home. What's going to happen to all those poor people? They'll be lost without him. God was working long before I came along in the plan. And he'll keep on working when I'm gone, if that's, if that's the way this plan is supposed to play out. So he's rendered idle death. We don't need to worry about this. And Timothy doesn't need to worry about death in the same way that Paul's not worried about it at this, this moment in time. And he's brought life and immortality to life. And he says, I'm a preacher of this, an apostle and a teacher. So there's three things he says here in this. He's one that heralds this. He's one that is an apostle that is sent on a specific mission with regard to this. And he's a teacher of these things. That means these things need to be taught. I was dealing with somebody recently, and I just say this, uh, dealing with somebody recently that was of the impression that if you can get the best Bible possible and just read it, you ought to be able to understand everything God wants you to know. And I would say, well, you should be reading your Bible. But God gave gifts, and one of those gifts, or a couple, some of several of those gifts involve people who do what? Teach. Now, if all you needed to do is have a Bible that you could sit at home and read for yourself, then God kind of was stupid in giving teachers to teach the word if we don't really need teachers. But Paul actually was sent as a teacher to teach these things. Now granted, they didn't have a, they didn't have the word really for Paul to teach yet. He's the words being expanded as Paul is writing these things and teaching these things. Teaching was a big thing. In fact, Paul did so much teaching if you remember, Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, we believe at this time when he's writing him. And how long did Paul spend in Ephesus? Three years. How often did he teach during those three years? Every day. Every day for three years. And how long did he teach every day? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. I've told you before, we have two Greek manuscripts in Acts that says that he taught for about four hours every day, right in the middle of the day because that's when everybody went home for their siesta. So could you imagine, if that were the case, seven days a week, four hours a day, you could have gone and you could have sat in potentially on Paul teaching God's truth. And you say, that's a lot of teaching. Well, I could tell you, there's a lot of stuff here. <laughs> I've been teaching for 30 years, and I still haven't taught everything. You have the other guys that step up and they teach and they're teaching on stuff and going, oh, I've never even dealt with that or I've never thought about that or I've never gone down that path, see? So there's a lot of stuff. 
to teach in the Word of God, and Paul was to be teaching these things. But it's for this reason, as he looks at this, he says, for this cause then, in other words, because God has put me in this position to do these things, for which cause then I suffer. I suffer for the things that I'm supposed to be proclaiming, the things that I was sent as an apostle to do, the things that I was to teach. He says, I suffer because of all of this, but I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of this. I think he's trying to encourage Timothy. Don't be ashamed of, the, of this message. Don't be ashamed of me. He says, I'm not ashamed of what I'm suffering, and I'm not ashamed of this message. He says, for I'm not ashamed. Why? Now we come to this great verse that I bet every one of us, or I trust every one of us, has learned way back when you were early on as a Christian. For I know in whom I have believed. That word have believed in the Greek is a perfect tense, meaning that it's something that was settled back here with this continuing result that Paul didn't say, well, I believe back there. I'm not sure if I believe anymore. No. A person that really is a believer will believe this back at a point, and this faith continues on. Granted, there are some believers that sometimes, because they're in situations and they're going through some things, go, I don't know if I believe that anymore. But if, if you can look in their heart, they're like, I do, I just have some questions right now. Because <laughs> things happen in life. But he says, that's settled. I know in whom I have believed. Second of all, he goes on. He says, not only do I know in whom I have believed, but I am persuaded. Also a perfect tense, meaning it goes back to a point in time in which Paul came to be persuaded by something <coughs> with the result that he remains persuaded about it at this time. That he is able, that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now this is where we get into the part that Bible teachers do not agree on. Translations do not agree on. Commentaries do not agree on. When we talk about entrusting or committing something, what do we think of when we think of entrusting something to somebody or committing something to somebody? Handing it over to them. You hand it over to them. Well, why would you hand something over to somebody? What? To keep it safe. Okay. You're handing it over for them to keep it safe. Now, what is he handing over here? Well, let me ask you this. Okay. I, I, I was trying to read your lips, but I couldn't understand what you were saying. What were you saying, Peggy? You hand it over because somebody's stronger. Oh, I like that. I like that. They're stronger. They're able to do something you don't have the ability to do. There's the message right there. <laughs> that, that's where this is going. That's where this is going. Okay, having said that, then we're still gonna we're gonna look at this other side of what's going on in here. We read, I, I read here in verse 12. It says, uh, notice has been entrusted, or here in the New American Standard in verse 12. Um, that he is able to, what I have entrusted, I have entrusted or here has been entrusted. For those of you that remember English, that is what English works, what part of speech is this? 
Is this an article, an adjective, a noun? Is this a verb? What is it? What is it? It's a verb. Like somebody's saying it, but I can't hear who it is. Oh, oh, back there. Verb. It's a verb. Do you know it's not a verb? It's not a verb. It's a noun. Our Bibles translate it. All, all the English Bibles that I've looked at, they all translate it as a verb, but it's not a verb, it's a noun. Literally, it's the thing entrusted. So it's kind of like a verbal noun, but it's actually just a noun. The thing entrusted. Then, this is the, this is the Christian Standard Bible. Does anybody here use the ESV? The ESV? Okay. What? You have an ESV. They translate it this way too, don't they? Entrusted to me. They, they translate it entrusted to me. I think the NIV, I looked at that. The NIV translates it that way. The Christian Standard Bible, which I have pulled up here, they translate it, has been entrusted to me. The New American Standard, which I'm reading from, says... He's able to guard, literally, what I have entrusted. But there's no I. There's no I have entrusted. It's just the thing entrusted. Okay. Now, the one thing that I want to pull up the Greek text here, because I want you to see this in the Greek text, what, what it says. We have, I am persuaded. I am persuaded that he is able, the thing entrusted, or the deposit. And then we have, we have a pronoun, mine. Mine, my entrusted thing. Now, there's different ways you can take it. And it's obviously obvious by looking at these other translations that some of them think it's something that God entrusted to him. New American Standard takes it. It's something Paul entrusted to God. Now, I believe, and I'm, let, let me show you why. This, this is the reason that most of these translations favor the idea that this is something that has been entrusted to Paul. Look with me in verse 14. Let's go to verse 14 of this chapter. Verse 14, I'd love to sit in verse 13 because it's actually a really, really... Let me just take a, uh, let, let me take a side road in verse 13 for you to think on yourself. That word there is to hold on to the pattern of healthy words or healthy teaching. In other words, Paul didn't tell Timothy everything that Timothy needed to know, but he told him enough that it was a pattern that Timothy was to fall, fall in. It set a framework. Okay, there we go. <laughs> That's a whole other study that we'll be getting into after the first of the year. Anyway, but verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Notice he tells Timothy, guard. Now that word guard in verse 14 is an imperative verb. And he's telling Timothy, you need to guard through the Holy Spirit who lives in us the good thing entrusted to you. Interesting fact, there is no to you. <laughs> it's just entrusted. They've added that because it's like, well, entrusted what? And again, it's a noun. It's not a verb. But they look at this and they say, Timothy, you, Paul says, Timothy, you need to guard this thing that... God's entrusted to you. And that thing is this message that he was supposed to be declaring to people. You need to guard that, Timothy. And I don't disagree with that. I think Timothy is clearly, he is entrusted with something, and he does have a responsibility to guard that message. 
How would you, if you were entrusted with the gospel, how would you guard that message? How would you guard the gospel? Not change it. Hmm? Not change it. That was one of the that was one of the points that uh, Ben Orth mentioned the other night. Is he says there? Are, make sure you keep the gospel clear, and don't ch and don't change it because he says there's a lot of people out there that the gospel is asked. You know, he, this is the one he the example he used, which I thought was a good one. Ask Jesus into your heart, because how many people? That's the gospel. That's the gospel for lots of people. Ask Jesus into your heart. The Bible does not say that. You don't have, the closest you get is maybe John 1, 12, as many as received him. Well, how'd they receive him? They asked him into their heart. I've actually had, I think somebody tried to explain that to me years ago on that. But th that's not really what the verse says, and it's a different context. But yeah, so don't change it. You guard it. You don't change it. You make sure that this is what the gospel is, and you don't mess with it. We don't need to mess around with the gospel. We don't need to repackage the gospel. The gospel is what it is. It's about the death of Christ. It's about his burial. It's about his resurrection. It's about the fact that by that death, he has secured forgiveness of your sins. And if you want a good exercise on your own, go read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, and then go over to Acts 10, and go to Acts 13 and read the whole chapter in both passages, and you're going to see both Peter and Paul go through that same message exactly as Paul delineates it. So, yes, guard it. That's, that's what Timothy's supposed to do. But here's the difference. Let's go back up to verse 12. Who's doing the guarding in verse 12? God. God's guarding. Now, this is the way most commentaries come about this. So, well, this is, let me, let me finish their argument. They go, since Timothy is supposed to guard a thing and trust and that's the gospel, that's what Paul is supposed to be taking care of, is this gospel. And we have that word entrust, or excuse me, the thing entrusted, that noun, it's used one other time. It's used over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it is also the gospel over there. See, so they go, well, if we've got these two passages and it's the gospel, then it must be the case with Paul, because the word only occurs three times and the other two are about the gospel, so it must be the case with Paul here in verse 12. But it's not, Paul, it's, Paul is not saying it's the gospel. What he's telling us in verse 12, and you, you already got the end, I think you got the, the key to this. Timothy is supposed to guard the thing entrusted to him, which is the gospel. But who's guarding the thing entrusted with regard to Paul in verse 12? God. And this is the way the commentaries, and reading through those, this is the way they handle it. God guards the gospel to make sure Paul gives it straight. Well, all I have to say is God's really slacking off because I hear a lot of people botch the gospel left and right. So if that's what he means in verse 12, that God is guarding that thing entrusted to Paul, namely the gospel, he's not doing a very good job. Because there's a lot of people that don't give the gospel correctly. But that's not what he's saying in verse 12. What he's saying in verse 12 is that there's something that Paul has entrusted. I, Paul's playing off this idea of entrusting. Timothy, you've been entrusted with a message. But there's also something on my side. And this would be true for Timothy, but Paul's using himself as an example. There's something he has entrusted. It's my entrustment. My committed thing. 
He's entrusted his life to God. He's committed his life to God. Now, there's different ways you can commit your life to God. There's a lot of people when they present the gospel, they mess it up because they say, give your life to God. Commit yourself to live for God. And that's not the gospel ever. What Paul means by this, in this context, is that he has to, he's had to come to realize his life's always in God's hands. It's probably one of the most important things as a Christian you can ever come to understand and appreciate is your life from your first breath until your last breath, if that's what God has planned for us, it's always in God's hands. Even when you're out of the will of God, your life's still in his hands. He's still accomplishing his purpose, believe it or not. If Philippians 1.6 isn't that he will continue to carry out that work he began in us as long as you are operating in the will of God. No, even when that Christian is out of the will of God, God's still, he's still at work in that individual. He's still got his purpose he's carrying out. I want to look at a couple of other passages related to this this morning. I want you to... It's the deposit. It's the same exactly this here. Let me pull this up here. Okay. Here's the word in verse 12. Okay. This is this is the word that Paul is using, parathekein. Go over to verse 14. And notice over here in verse 13, or verse 14, he uses exactly the same word in exactly the same form up there. It's this one up here, just for clarity. I didn't do that very well. It's exactly the same word that, that he uses of himself. But this is one Timothy's supposed to be guarding. The one in verse 12 is one that God is guarding. It's because he's talking about two different things, but in the context, they're related to the same issue. What, what did Paul tell Timothy outset that Timothy was supposed to be doing? Using his gift. And part of his gift was to, to preach the gospel. That's part of what his gift was. In fact, at the, at, the, at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4, do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. You're supposed to be sharing this good news. And Timothy doesn't want to do it. He wants to keep his head down because, hey, if he sticks up there and he announces the gospel, his head might roll just like Paul's. But Paul, remember, has asked Timothy, join with me in suffering evil because of the gospel. Which means you need to be participating in this. But if you come and you share, and I believe that this is what Paul's saying, his confidence is in verse 12. Is Timothy, remember who is the one, who is the one that guards the thing, shall we say, that we've entrusted to God that is guards our life? I mean, when you come to saving faith in Christ, you don't particularly understand this, but I think this is something that comes as part of your Christian life, that eventually you come to realize God's the one that's in control of my life. He's the one that's determined my days. He's the one that holds my life in his hands. I just, in fact, I was looking at a verse. Jim was talking about something and made me chase a little rabbit trail for just a minute this morning. And I came, came, came across a verse, not even really the main point, but in Revelation 1, where it tells us that Jesus Christ, he's the one that holds the keys of death. He's got the keys. 
He's got them there. He's the one that's in control of this. Now, we've got a number of different statements about God guarding and keeping safe where it uses the verb form of this word in the New Testament. I've got one in John chapter 17, 12 we're not going to look at. But I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 18. I want you to look at something that happened to Paul in his life. Acts chapter 18. Now let's just see if you can answer this question. Paul's experience in Philippi, did it end great or did it end kind of rough? Paul goes on to Thessalonica. Did, the, did his time in Thessalonica, did it end great or did it end up a little rough? Ended up rough. He goes to Berea. Did his time in Berea, did it go great or did it end rough? Rough. The same guys causing problems in Thessalonica chased him down over to Berea. Paul gets to Athens on Mars Hill. And it's not now these Jews that are the problem. Who's the problem in, in Mars Hill? Yeah. The philosophers. Yeah, well, yeah, it is, it is Paul's decision. And did that situation end well or did it end rough? And ended up rough. In fact, Paul himself admits when he writes 1 Corinthians, because where did he go after he left Athens? Corinth. Corinth. And he says, when I got there, I arrived in meekness and in fear and in much trembling. I was scared. I was struggling. And he says, I determined I wasn't going to know anything except Christ and him crucified. I did not want your faith to stand in man's philosophy. He calls it wisdom. But that's what, that's what philosophy was. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the early philosophers, they didn't always use the word philosophy. They used the word wisdom, which is what, in the Greek, the word philosophy is built off the word wisdom. And so Paul says, I didn't want any of that. I got to Corinth because he'd been shaken up. So he is in Corinth. That's where we're putting in here in John chapter 18. He is in Corinth. And I want you to see Acts chapter 18 and put in with me down at verse 9. Oh, I'm in John 18. No wonder this doesn't look right. I kept looking at this going, where is my verse? Okay. Um, I want you to go back and just, I have to pick this up. It says in verse 6, And when they resisted and blasphemed. Oh, look at things are going sideways again, Paul. Just like in Philippi, just like in Thessalonica, just like in Berea, just like in Athens. Things are going sideways. They blasphemed. He shook out his garments and said, Your blood is on your heads. I'm clean from you. I'm going to the Gentiles. And he departed. Now, if you just ended there, you just go, Paul's just frustrated. But wait. He departed from there, went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was right next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, he believed in the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So there were some people that believed, but Paul marches out of there like, I'm done. And the Lord said to Paul, verse 9, really very important. In the night, do not be afraid. Literally, stop being afraid, Paul. Why did Paul shake off his garments? He was afraid. He didn't want to go through another experience like he'd had in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. You think that that beating he took in Philippi didn't leave a scar in his soul? <laughs> in his soul? It wasn't just on his back. I've shared with you before, in the Greek, 
of Acts 16, when it says that that magistrate was giving commands <coughs> to the lictors for beating him, that it is written in the imperfect, which doesn't mean he goes, take him out and beat him. It means in the imperfect that it was something ongoing, which I don't, and I could be wrong in this, but I don't know how else to illustrate an ongoing thing that he expresses there other than to say that they, he says, whip him or whip them. And then he whips and maybe those guys after a few beatings, they stop and he goes, give him some more. And they stop, give him some more. I don't know. I don't think I'm reading too much into the text. There's a reason Luke uses an imperfect tense to describe what was happening there. You think that didn't leave some emotional scars with Paul? I'm sure it did. And it also had to be bad, otherwise the guilt trip that he lays on him later would work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is true. This is true. So, here in Acts, it says, the Lord has to appear to Paul by night. He says, stop being afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. In other words, Paul was going to shut up and he was going to quit. And the Lord has to tell Paul, quit being afraid, buddy. Do not be silent. I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. And Paul could have gone, wait a second. Can we review the last few months? He doesn't. He doesn't do that. He says, for I have many people in this city. By the way, that's a good verse on election, by the way, isn't it? I've got a lot of people in this city. You don't know who they are. You can't see it, but they're here. You know what's really interesting about this statement? If you read from this point on, did Paul ever get into trouble in the book of Acts with people from this point on? The Lord was good on his promise. In fact, when he's over in Ephesus... There's this insane riot that goes on in the city, but Paul doesn't suffer a thing. In fact, Paul actually by that time is so bold, he wants to go down into the city and the brothers are going, no way, Paul. You are not going down into that melee. They will rip you limb from limb. I'm exaggerating, but they're telling him you can't go. It's bad. Don't go down in there. But there, Paul comes to no harm until Paul goes to Jerusalem, contrary to the will of God. And even then, and I still always find it interesting when Paul shares a testimony later on, he says, and I had returned and I was in the temple praying and the Lord appeared to me saying, Paul, get out of here right now. They won't listen to you. And Paul goes, no, Lord, they will. And that's not an earlier visit. That was that visit. He just jumped over a whole bunch of stuff to come down to that visit. And he says, the Lord told him to get out. And he argued with the Lord. God, the Lord was giving him one last chance to do his will. As long as Paul, from this point on, just went to the places God wanted him to go and preached the gospel, that didn't mean everybody was happy about it. But guess what? Paul came to no harm. He came to no harm. In fact, even at that point, he still didn't come to harm. Oh, they were about to beat him. And then he goes, wait a second. Is this what you do to a Roman citizen? And the guy goes, oh, because <laughs> he doesn't want to get in trouble. All of that to say, Paul has learned firsthand, by the time he writes at the end of his life, and he has traveled by ship, and gone to Rome, and endured imprisonment in Rome for two years, and then been released, and all these different things that Paul has experienced, Paul really can say, and I've, we've got some other verses on this in here, but I, I just want to get back to Paul's main point, and let's go back to... 2 Timothy, and tie this off. 
I've got verses there about him committing believers to, to God and the word about God's grace. We've looked at those recently. Those aren't that long ago. Um, so there is this thing about committing other people. Uh, Acts 14.23, committed them to the Lord. You can look these verses up, but this is what I want you to see about what Paul's main point is he's getting at here in 2 Timothy 1.12. He says, it's for this reason I suffer all these things, and I'm not ashamed. For I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able, my deposit, this word, my deposit. When somebody gives you something, and you have to go to the bank and make a deposit, is it a thing the bank's giving you? No, it's a thing you're entrusting to the bank to keep it safe. My deposit, which is what Paul says, he is able to guard my deposit. What had Paul deposited to the Lord? He'd come to a place in his life, he'd come that he had to realize that his safekeeping in his life was in God's hands. Again, that's a Christian life truth. That's a Christian life promise. You don't tell somebody that at the outset when you give them the gospel. It's something you have to teach Christians. And you understand, and this is what, what Peggy said right off the bat, and I said, God's able to do what, God's the only one that can do that. He's the only one strong enough that it comes down to the fact somewhere along the way in your Christian life, God's going to bring you to the point that you're going to quit worrying about, well, I might die if I do that, or I might die if I do that. I might die if I do that. <laughs> I might. Die. Are some of us like that? Yeah. It's the reason I don't go see Josh and Faye down there because you got to go out in the ocean for six hours and I know I'll fall overboard and drown and get eaten by a great white shark or something. I don't know. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I just, I've got this real fear of deep, deep water. I just, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. I'm joking. That's not really the reason, but it's not, I'm not saying that doesn't run through my mind at times when I think about that kind of stuff. But the thing is, is Paul, God had to bring Paul this point and he shares this here because if he can encourage Timothy with the fact that he has something he has entrusted to God that God is guarding, which is namely Paul's life and, and his safekeeping, that should encourage Timothy, guess what? Now the thing that has been entrusted to you, the gospel, your thing that's been entrusted to you, you can guard that. And I've shared this with you before. Strictly from an historical human point of view, did Timothy have good reason to fear for his life? And I've shared this. Maybe some of you haven't heard me share this before. But church history tells us that about 10 years after Paul writes this letter, about 10 years later, the citizens of Ephesus rise up against the church. They take Timothy. They drag him outside the city. And they don't behead him. That's a quick, fast death, like Paul went. They beat Timothy to death with clubs. I can't imagine what that kind of death would be like. From a human historical point of view, he had a cause. He had a cause to fear. He had a cause to keep his head down. He had a cause to not use his spiritual gift. He had a cause to not guard the thing God had entrusted to him. But it's not a rational, it's not a rational cause when you bring God into the picture. Because when you bring God into the picture, you'd say, God's the one that's in charge of my life. And is there anything you can do to make your life go a day longer? If I keep my head down and don't share the gospel, maybe I'll live another year. Baloney, you're not going to go. 
You're not going to go longer than God's determined. And if a person like Paul is doing the will of God and their life comes to an end, we'd say, well, you know, if Paul would have been quiet, maybe he would have lived another 10 years. Really? This is what we think. This is what we think. No, he was being obedient. And if you're being obedient to the will of God, you have no reason to think that your life is going to be any, any different, any change with regard to the length, or even for that matter, the quality of life. Do you think a believer ran into, every once in a while you run into believers that, that you meet and you know they're out of the will of God. You know that they've made some decisions that aren't, that aren't the will of God. And when you run into them, you look at them and you're going, you're not happy. You're not happy. You can't tell me that you're happy in the things that are out of the will of God. No matter what you might be doing out there. You might have scored a new house and a new car and a good paying job. And I got all these things by going down this path. And is that really making you happy? Because you know you're not where God wants you to be. And when I run into those people, and I ran into a couple of them last night. The one person, it's just, it is so awkward. You know, you just, you just know that the one person is just like, mm, I don't know that I really want, I don't want to talk too much here because I'm afraid we might go down that path and I'm going to have to feel more guilty than maybe I already do. I didn't want to make them feel guilty. I didn't do that. Paul, Paul knows God's going to, guard this thing that Paul has entrusted to him. Paul's deposit. Not something deposited to him. Hope you understand that. If you have an ESV, an NIV, a CSB, or any other Bible that says the thing entrusted to me, correct that. I do not think that that is what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's my deposit that God is guarding. It's not a thing God's entrusted to me. And it's something that actually takes away from you, takes away from you something that should encourage you with regard to the fact God's in control of your life. He's in charge of your life. And you just go about doing his will and you let him take care of the things that, as, as Peggy put it, you're not strong enough to take care of. You're not by your strength. They're going to add one more hair on top of your head. No matter, I've tried. It just keeps going away. Right, Josh? No matter how hard you try, just you, you're not strong enough to make them come back. Uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of us that are, you deal with that. You know what I'm saying. But that's what Jesus says. What, who of you by any effort can, you know, add hair on top of your head or add another day to your life? That's what Jesus tells us. You can't do it. You can't do it. God can. He's the only one strong enough to take care of your life. Father, we're thankful for the morning. We're thankful for the time together. We ask that you might encourage us from your word with the fact that you are guarding our days, our life. They're in your hands. And as we do, as we know that, are reminded of that, are confident of your ability in that, that we might not then fear in any way doing the things that you've set before us, using our gift for others making those sacrifices sometimes that we have to make as we minister and serve and give our time to other people. We're thankful for this. Thankful for your word this morning. Ask that we might be encouraged by it as we move out into the day and to the things before us this week. Amen.